The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading this morning comes to us from the book of James, chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. God, we thank you for your word. And Father, I ask that you would use our time in your word once again to transform us. I pray for my words that they would be your words. I pray that the words that are solely my words would be forgotten, but that the words that are from the mouth of your son Jesus would be received and welcomed and held tightly to. We pray this in his name. Amen. Catastrophic implosion was the cause. Recently, the news reported that the remains of a submersible vessel called the Titan was found just 1,500 feet from the bow of the ship that sank over 100 years ago, the Titanic. Titan and Titanic, two words all about strength. Sadly, all five passengers aboard the Titan perished. And this catastrophic implosion happened, why? Because the weight and the pressure of the water surrounding the Titan became too much for the submersible's structure to bear. It collapsed. The catastrophic implosion happened from the outside in under the weight of the ocean's water. There's been a lot of finger-pointing at the company OceanGate, who manufactured the vessel, saying that the Titan's trial testing wasn't enough to know whether it was able to withstand the ocean depth of 12,000 feet. That's almost two and a half miles down the ocean's floor. The water pressure at that depth calculates to about 5,500 pounds per square inch. That's like the weight of a pickup truck 
pressing in on a little quarter. Trial testing may have demonstrated and proven whether the Titan was a tried and true underwater submersible. Trial testing, though, is not easy. Trial testing is costly. It's time-consuming. It is painstaking. But what if trial testing is the only means by which something can be seen for what it truly is? And what if trial testing is the means God uses so we and the watching world around us might see who we truly are? None of us would willingly ask for a pickup truck to be set on our chest. Most of us would prefer that God find other ways to show who we truly are. Give us a pain-free, debt-free, trouble-free life, and I am sure I will believe in you. I'll still follow you. I'll still trust in you. But what if the way in which a faith in Jesus is perfected is only through trial testing? then what should our response be? James says it must be this. Joy. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trial testing of various kinds. It sounds a bit ridiculous to begin a letter. He starts this letter with a call for joy to whom? To a group of Christians who, because of their faith in Jesus, had to flee their homes. They had to move far away. They are being treated as social outcasts. They are being spit upon as spiritual traitors. And they're being abused by the Gentiles by the Gentiles hiking up their rent in their new place and robbing them blind of anything that they have. Joy? How is this possible? That I'm supposed to consider where I am right now because of Jesus, joy. James tells us how. James tells us how that these trials become the testing ground of the materials of our faith in Jesus. This is what I will propose this morning. And James is proposing to us. Trial testing is what God uses to perfect our faith in Jesus. So we must rejoice. Trial testing is what God uses to perfect our faith in Jesus. So we must rejoice. There are three ways in this passage that James is calling us as slaves of our master Jesus. That Jesus owns us. Three ways he's calling us to respond to trial testing with joy. And they're this. In your trials, stay. In your uncertainty, pray. And in your poverty, praise. In your trials, stay. In your uncertainty, pray. And in your poverty, praise. First, in your trials, stay. Look with me at verses 3 to 4. For you know that the testing of your faith 
produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is calling for steadfastness to have its way in them. But what we have to do is some definition work in this text so we're all on the same page. What is steadfastness? Steadfastness is what happens when a submersible is sent further and further down into the ocean depths and it doesn't fall apart. And it's what happens when we're sent further and further into pressurized situations and trials. It is the power to withstand hardship or duress or distress. Call it this. Endurance is staying power. These pressurized situations result in staying power. And James says, let that staying power do its work until it's finished. Until it's fully done with what it's supposed to do in you. Which is what? It's supposed to make you whole, perfect, complete, mature as a slave of your master Jesus. Where you'll actually begin to look more like him in this pressurized process. And when you have him and you're staying in him, you're lacking in nothing, he says. We must let the staying power of Christ shape us. And we cannot short-circuit what he's doing during the trial testing. I think of this, I don't know if it's true scientifically, but it's the story that's told about the butterfly and how it's short-circuited as it's developing. You know the story maybe? A man, he's watching a monarch emerge from its cocoon. And for hours, this little insect keeps wriggling and writhing around, trying to make its large body that's still in the cocoon make its way out of this tiny little hole. Through this small pressurized opening. And after a while of struggle, the butterfly just stops moving. And it looks like it's given up. So the man that's watching this cuts a hole in the opening to make it easier for that butterfly to go through. And what happens? The large insect body that's still inside the cocoon comes out. But it comes out with these shriveled, puny wings, unable to fly. Why? Because it was the pressure of that narrow opening that forced the flow of liquids from the enlarged body into the wings. Let steadfastness have its full effect. In your trials, the Lord Jesus is calling you to stay. To allow that narrow, pressurized place that he has you in to bring about to completion, to maturity, to wholeness. Lacking in nothing. Friends, rejoice as you let the boiling water of being faithfully single in a hookup or married world. Let that boiling water Soften you to love the lonely like you have been loved in your lostness. So that you become, say, like an al dente pasta. 
Let the narrow opening of a marriage where your spouse seems more your enemy than an ally press fluids into your proverbial faith wings that you stay with him or her and that demonstrates the staying power of a God who stayed with you. Let the enormous pressures of going deeper and deeper into the places you can't seem to control, like your health getting worse. I had kidney stones this week as I'm getting older. Oh, I can't go. Joy, joy, this hurts so bad. Or paralyzing worry. Or your middle finger flipping children who don't want to have anything to do with you. Let those pressures increase your resolve to stay the course of Christ. So that while he might not change the opening of the whole, you would believe with faith that he is forming and changing you. This doesn't mean there's never a relief to that pressure. There's never an end to these trials. No, the Lord is gracious there too. But when we shortcut them for our own relief, we miss out on the joy of his comfort, his presence, his help within the trial. Friends, in your trials, stay. Second, in your uncertainty, pray. Look with me at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James is considered a letter of wisdom. It's called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And another definition we need to unpack is this, wisdom. What, what is wisdom? If you're lacking it, what, what is it that I'm lacking? Wisdom is the skill of faith, if you will. It's the way in which faith in Jesus is practiced. Wisdom is taking all of the principles of what God says works best and applying them to various situations and circumstances. And what happens? It leads us to wholeness. But notice what James doesn't say about wisdom. He doesn't say this. Because you belong to Jesus, the master, you know everything there is to know about life. You are finished. You are done. You got everything down. No, that's not what he says. He says, if anyone is lacking in wisdom, and so wisdom, we have to understand, is a practice. And it's a practice that begins with prayer. You need to ask. You need to be dependent upon him for answers. Our asking is where our faith is also tested. Keep reading in verses 6 to 8. But let him who asks in faith with no doubting... For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Asking God for wisdom in faith is more than a gimme, 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 gimme God. Praying in wisdom in faith is instead saying, you are, you are, you are God. You are, you are, you are God. The doubter, James illustrates, is like a wave that's blown about by the winds of change. He'll call upon God for help, but he'll also call upon anything and anyone else to help him. He's double-minded, which means he's got one foot in faith and the other foot in the world. And the world's wisdom says this, do what you think is right. Mm-hmm. And God's wisdom says, do what's proven to be true. So can you imagine if this man 
is standing on one foot on each, it would be like standing your right foot on a rock and your left foot on a soccer ball. Unstable. That's the doubter. And that's us. We've got to admit that. We often do that. And what James is encouraging us, no, both feet. Both feet on Christ. Both feet on the rock. Think of that phrase, uh, answered prayer. Did the Lord answer your prayer? We even maybe ask that question. The doubter hears that term, answered prayer, and assumes there's two types of prayer. The ones that God answers and the ones that God doesn't. So when God doesn't seem to be showing up with exactly what I asked for, I'm going to go and find the answer somewhere else. The faithful, the single-minded, set on God, believe that every single prayer for help that I ask of you, Lord, is answered. Even if the answer is a not yet, or maybe I will never see how or when or where this is going to get resolved. Doubt is disputing between God and the world and deciding which one has the better offer. But James says God is generous to give. He's he's ready to respond to you, and he will respond to you. And God is also, it says, without reproach, which, friends, I find such a comfort. Because I have a performance-based God that only responds to me if I'm doing well. If I'm living faithfully, then God, will, then God will respond. That's unfortunately the God that I often think I'm serving. But that's not what James says. James says he is a God without reproach. It means God isn't responding to your prayers with, I, I guess, this once. But next time, you better get it right. That is not how God responds. Figure it out next time. If you're going to ask me to clean up your room before you come here, Asking for a vacuum, you know, you better clean up your room next time by yourself. That's not how God answers. He answers every request for wisdom. Friends, our heads can make us crazy with our pro and con list, right? You ever do that? I love making pros and cons lists. What do I do? Which which, which way do I go? And we create these pros and cons lists, don't we? Do I marry this guy or don't I? Do I take this job or don't I? But like a wise friend once encouraged me, wisdom is not a corn maze of which way do I go? Which way do I go? Is this the right way? Is this the wrong way? That's not how wisdom works. Unfortunately, I think that's how we treat God. It's the right way. It's the wrong way. Which way do I go? No. He says this. My friend said this. Wisdom is like a railing on a ship that allows me to just move freely about the deck with these guards keeping me from falling off. In your uncertainty, let him remind you about what is certain and stable, that he is a generous God and he will always answer you. And let him remind you that your circumstances are not always certain. Your calendar is not always certain. Your kids are not always certain. But Christ is. And a wise prayer of faith begins, I know you to be true. And then continues with, I need this for you to do. Our Father, the one who's in heaven, make holy your name. That's how we begin. In your uncertainty, pray. In your trials, stay. And lastly, in your poverty, praise.
the people James is writing to, they're mainly poor, displaced aliens. Think of some of the illegal aliens in our country right now. This is who James is writing to. Most of them have very little to their name. A handful of them might have a decent amount in their bank account, but for the most part, they're poor. And his strong encouragement to them in verses 9 and 10 is this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast in his humiliation. He's asking the lower class and the upper class to do something. And what is that? Boast. That word in the Greek means rejoice or bask in. But notice the reversal of fortunes that James is saying. The poor, the lowly, the scum of the earth are celebrating a promotion. (laughs) And the rich are celebrating and rejoicing that they're going to be humiliated. What's going on here? James is wisely promoting a change of priority when it comes to things like wealth. Wealth in our world is status. It gets you somewhere, right? But according to the kingdom, wealth will never be the means by which you get anywhere with God. You can buy people off, you can manipulate them with money, but God will never be bought off. Wealth doesn't work. The only status, friends, that we have before God is poverty. We come with nothing to offer him. Nothing to bring to the table. Not our master's degree. Not our money. Not our morality. Like one of my favorite songs that I sang in my 20s. No amount of green, gold, or silver. The perfect body. Another hot toddy. Work for the Lord. Fame and power. Power and sex. A seat at the table of the Green Bay Country Club. Here's the rub. Nothing will ever buy God. There is nothing lasting about these things. But there is everything lasting about Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to that cross I cling. I come naked to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. And what is given to those who admit they are so poor? Luke 6 says it when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, for guess what they receive? The kingdom of God is theirs. Exaltation. The poor in faith see our status in the world according to Christ and Christ in the world. And what happened to him? He received the kingdom of God and we follow him. And if we're rich, which friends... Everyone in this room is rich compared to the majority of the world. For the rich, we rejoice that our status symbols will be taken away, that we will be demoted, and that we will be hanging solely on the reputation and status of Christ. And the orphans, guess what? In heaven, in the kingdom of God, the orphans get the house. Yes! 
Orphans get the house. Homeless get the house. The beggar gets the bank. Yes, we rejoice in the upside-down, beautiful, boastful economy of the kingdom of God. Where Christ offers the riches of a debtor being forgiven. Of a dead man coming to life forever. And of a future where flowers and fruit will never be scorched by the sun. Catastrophic implosion was not only the cause of the Titan's demise, it was also the curse of the cross. A son of God and a son of man would go through the trial of sinking himself to the floor of the ocean in order to raise us up. Jesus would go through the trial testing of feeling the immeasurable weight of God's judgment on us for our sin and take it on himself. That it would break his body, but it would not break his will. It would show us who he truly is, the Son of God, when the soldier, after he died, said to him, surely that man was the Son of God. This trial testing would show what kind of king he was, a king who would serve his father and his people with joy. Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us, says this, there was a joy set before him so that he could endure the fiery trial testing of the cross, that in his uncertainty he could call out to his Father, your will be done. And who could in his naked poverty declare, the work is finished. What is the joy for Christ? It's to establish a kingdom that cannot and will not ever, ever be shaken. Testing trials, friends, have a verdict, a final verdict of joy. Because in them, the wisdom of God is working to bring about a fulfillment of what we really want. What all of us really want, friends, is the most glorious end imaginable. And joy promises that to be the case. C.S. Lewis writes this. All joy reminds. All that joy does is remind us. Joy is never something that you can possess. Not something you can hold tightly to. No. Joy is always a desire for something, he says, longer ago and further away or still about to be. That's what joy is. In your trials, Stay. In your uncertainty, pray. And in your poverty, praise. Because your perfect king, the one who endured the most horrible trial testing, has made a home for you. Your perfect home and your perfect crown awaits. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, there are many of us here this morning who are enduring trials that they want out of. Trials that we want to short circuit. That we want to cut the opening wider so we can just get through them quicker. 
It's not how you operate. It's not how you work. And so we pray that in the midst of these trials that all of us are facing in various ways, that we would stay and wait and watch you work. Father, that leads to a lot of uncertainty, how to stay, how to wait. And so make us more and more a people who in that staying are praying. Help me. Not my will, but yours be done. Show me a joy set before me so I can endure this. And Father, the more we come to you empty-handed, and asking and needy for help. May we praise you that our joy in these trials will be made complete because we know you have secured a finish, a new heaven and a new earth where we long for what's about to be and we have joy knowing that you will make it happen. Give us faith to consider it all joy. And give us Jesus, the one who led the way in enduring trials of testing. We pray this in his name. Amen.